everyone. Welcome to this episode of It's Your Call. I'm Karen Medland, and I'm here today with my co-host, Andrew Richardson, and our guest, Andrew Hyde. Welcome. Hi, great to be with you today. So Andrew is our multi-faith chaplain at Guelph University. He was recognized as a designated lay minister in the United Church of Canada. In fact, actually, that makes you our first DLM on the program, Andrew. DLM, for our listeners, is the acronym that the United Church uses for our designated lay ministers, because we're lazy sometimes, and acronyms are better than having to say all those words. But Andrew is a designated lay minister recognized in our church, and as I say, he is multi-faith chaplain at Guelph University. So welcome, Andrew. Well, thanks for having me. I'll correct you just briefly. I'm an ecumenical chaplain at the University of Guelph, and so I represent the Anglican, the Presbyterian, and the United Church here, but I get to be part of a multi-faith team of colleagues, which is really a blessing for sure. Thanks, Andrew. See, I'm always needing corrected. Andrew will tell you that. <laughs> so I'm going to have fun today because I've got two Andrews with me, and I know I've got Andrew squared. So, um, Andrew, we normally start with our guests and ask them to start at the beginning and think about your own call to ministry, and in particular, the designated lay ministry. What was it that led you to that? I guess I should put a caveat on it. I'm a designated lay minister for now. There are big questions about designated lay ministry in Mm. our church. And in some ways, I like to tell the story that designated lay ministry happened to me more so than I chose it per se. But I guess my sense of call to ministry, like most people, I guess, would start back with my family and my parents in particular. I am a United Church preacher's kid, so I have one strike against me already, I guess. But uh, yeah, I grew up in the United Church and had a father for a minister and uh, all the joys and challenges of being a minister's kid in the United Church. It's actually kind of amazing how many minister's kids also sense a call to ministry in their own way, I guess, and grew up in the United Church. And I guess I was about 10 years old when 1988 happened in our church. And so I got to see from a child's perspective, kind of lots of tumult and challenges and wondering why my dad was angry all the time and going through such a challenge with his church. And of course, you know, not recognizing that those were unique times, I guess, but they were formative conversations, I guess, or a formative milieu to begin thinking about the church and stuff. And I got the sense from him that ministry could be challenging and that sometimes he took a resignation letter in his back pocket to board meetings and wondered if he'd have to pull it out kind of thing. So that kind of framed my sense of what ministry was. And I thought, oh, I want no part of that. That sounds treacherous and horrible. But I guess the counterbalance for me was my mother, who, besides being part of a minister's family as well, we know the kind of unique role in ministry that has sometimes been in our church, was an elementary school teacher. And so had a love of kids and I could relate a bit more with that and educational programs and caring for young people and, and things like that. So when I got to the end of my undergrad, I studied English. So it was something I loved, but wasn't as a direct line to a career. I, so I came out of my undergrad with lots of questions and wonderings. And I thought I might go into ministry like my dad. I thought I might go into teaching like my mom. And I was looking to buy some time to make that decision. And so I found a youth ministry job and thought, well, it kind of combines both of those things I'm kind of interested in. And I'll do this for a year or two till I decide which of those paths I will take. 
And then I guess I eventually found that that was the thing God was calling me to. And so I experienced my sense of vocation around the spiritual care and nurture of young people in our church. So let me just kind of jump back a little here with you, Andrew. I think you might be also be our first PK, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> our first pastor's kid on the podcast. So again, as Andrew and I think have said almost every single episode, no matter who we sit down with, their call story is unique in so many ways. And yet also there is a pattern to the call stories that we hear. So I'm not sure, given what you've said about your dad, and I might be heading in the wrong direction because I'm going to make a huge assumption here. I'm not sure, was it your dad who tapped you on the shoulder and said, think about ministry? Or were there other people in this circle of family, friends, congregants that you were experiencing as a young person who kind of tapped you on the shoulder and said, have you thought? Yeah, I think importantly, it was not my dad that tapped me on the shoulder, but he gave lots of room. In my teenage years, church was optional for me and stuff. He was pretty adamant, I think, about not pigeonholing us into being kind of the postcard church family, I guess. But for me, that tap began at uh, United Church Camps. So it was there that I kind of ran into some folks who I looked up to who weren't my parents and were presenting faith in a way that was fun and exciting and cool. And only as I marinated in that kind of community for a while did I realize that these people who I looked up to were actually saying the same thing my dad said on Sundays, but for some reason I'd hear it from them and I wouldn't hear it from him. <laughs> and stuff. Isn't that all of teenage life though? Pretty much, yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, it was kind of my camp communities. And then growing up and going off to school, campus ministry was really important to me there. So I think as I came out of undergrad, had a sense of calling to Christian vocation, but knew I still didn't want to do what my dad was doing. Wanted to carve my own way and, and stuff a little bit. Youth ministry felt like the kind of thing that I would do this anyway. And so if there's a way I can do this and have it be my work and stuff, even better. There were people who I looked up to who had poured into me as a young person and who I wanted to pour into as well. I was ordained in 1988. So I know what tumult there was at that time. What was it about the DLM program in particular that you thought would augment your youth ministry? I guess when I went into youth ministry, DLM program didn't exist yet. So I became a staff associate back in 2001. And so the job that I had found was 15 hours a week. It was just over back then. It was an hourly threshold. You know, if your position was over 14 hours, I think you had to be a staff associate. So I figured out how to become a staff associate. And back then it wasn't a whole program you went to. It was just a set of interviews and stuff. So I became a staff associate. And a few years into that, I got a letter that said, you're now a DLM. And I said, okay, <laughs> sure. Right, okay. And I guess that has continued to be an important distinction that I think sometimes we can get confuse our sense of call to a category or a position or a title with our sense of call to the work. I've always felt called to the work. And will do what you need me to do to open the doors that allows me to do the work, right? And and even to this day, as we're continuing to, you know, I'm expecting the letter to come someday that I'm no longer a DLM <laughs> and, well, you know, will be invited to be something else. And to me, those categories haven't really touched my heart 
in the same way that just kind of a broader general sense of calling to doing the work that I feel God has equipped me for. I think that's probably an experience. And you're right, we kind of get sometimes tied up in this category, language, etc. But I, I think my experience of talking both to students when I'm working with them and candidates and talking to my colleagues is that it's more about the work, about what am I being called into? How am I being called to serve? And the process is the way to get there. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's the work that seems the bigger question. So with that in mind, you've moved into a pretty unique style of ministry because of that sense of following the call rather than the -hmm. process. So tell us how you ended up at Guelph. I guess, you know, my first role was kind of a part-time youth ministry gig at a, a church here in Ontario, United Church. I worked at a bookstore to kind of supplement the other half of that quickly kind of found that the bookstore part of my life was the draining part and the exciting part was the ministry part. And so wanted to inquire, how can I become one of these a little community of folks who managed to do full-time youth ministry in our church? And I was fortunate enough There used to be a yearly pilgrimage down to Princeton for the youth ministry forum down there and or at NEOS or at Five Oaks or a few other programs where I got to kind of run into some folks who were doing it as their full-time kind of thing. And I thought, oh, I want to be able to commit myself to this work like they do. So I went back to school. I got a master's of theological studies at McMaster Divinity College, actually, because I was living in Hamilton at the time and proceeded one position to another. Worked for Ottawa Presbytery for a while as their regional youth person for a bit, back into congregational ministry. And then what I found was that a lot of my heart space was opening up around young adults. We have some good programs in our church. There's always room for improvement and stuff, but there's some good cornerstone programs in our church for young people, for children and teenagers. But where it seemed like we were falling off a little bit was when you graduate out of high school and go off to maybe university or maybe college or maybe career or whatever. Once you graduate out of youth group, it felt like a big leap to then join congregational life. And so I was always kind of carving out room in my youth ministry to also make space for the young adults in our midst. And in congregational ministry, that's a bit of a challenge because there's not a lot of young adults in congregational life there. And then got an opportunity to lead a intentional community at the last church I worked at and invited some young adults to live at our church with us. And that was a neat program for a couple of years. And that's where just kind of my sense of calling and heart Mm -hmm. was moving towards. When the opportunity came here at Guelph, an opportunity came up to be the ecumenical minister here. I jumped at that and was able to commit myself to the work of young adult ministry, but specifically campus ministry here. You're always kind of called to where you see the need. And for me, youth ministry, but specifically young adult ministry is an area of our church that needs some folks who are committed to it. I I think of ministry with young adults as being the hardest. I can't think of anything harder because my experience is that age group is either hostile to the church or lost from the church in many ways. They don't even have the starter points necessarily to start the conversation. So what have you seen in that work? Well, like you say, it is hard work. It's challenging work. It's like with youth ministry, it's so important to not make 
too many huge generalizations about young adults in our midst. We get such a mixed experience of, of folks here in our ministry. I'd say a third of our ministry here is made up of students who are resonate as United Church or Anglicans or Presbyterians, and that's why they're here with us. Another third probably don't identify with any Christian tradition at all. They're here because it feels like a safe space where they get some encouragement and a, a bowl of chili. And then a third are folks who come from evangelical backgrounds who are disconnecting with the faith they grew up in, but don't want to give up on Christianity as a whole. So they're kind of experiencing maybe a new form of being church by connecting with us that wasn't available to them as young folks. I think you're right. I think religious literacy is really weak amongst everyone these days, but there's not really a lot of a starting point to work from for a lot of students. So connecting with our ministry might be their first introduction to church or church language. And that's both daunting and cool because there's not sometimes not a lot of baggage to unpack there too. Sometimes our students have to unpack a lot of experiences when they get away from home for the first time. So you're based in the university, you get space provided for your ministry. And I love how it's like, it's all about the food, you know, they come for the chili, stay for the conversation, right? I was in ministry in BC, and there was a, an annex campus of one of our major universities in the town. And we were trying to have a conversation without expanding some volunteer chaplaincy into there. And we were quite adamantly told we were not welcome. And it was because another ministry style on campus had kind of burned some bridges for everybody else. You know, and I think this is a good question for people to hear as re reflect on, because there will be people who maybe are sending young people to university or young people going to university who are thinking, how can I sustain my faith or how are they going to have their sustained? Do you find encouragement from the university community or are you kind of over in the corner and people find you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great question and really unique to each campus. Different campuses have different stories and have different aims for what they, they aim to do. Here at Guelph, we were founded officially in the 60s and in that 60s moved towards secular education. And so Guelph has always kind of prided itself on being a secular university here funded by the provincial government and so forth. And so there's no seminaries here on our campus. There's no religious studies department. It is the chaplains who are the faith embodiment here on our campus. And so we actually have a history of chaplaincy here at Guelph that has been, for the most part, warmly welcomed. It's one of the first innovators of having a multi-faith resource team here. So the push, the recognition to have not just one tradition held over and above others on campus, but to welcome chaplains from an interfaith perspective and to have them function as a team to model to the rest of the university what understanding and harmony and peacemaking across difference looks like. My work with the multi-faith resource team and my interfaith chaplains colleagues here is one of the real joys of the work that I get to do here. So the university here funds for a staff person, a full-time position, to coordinate the multi-faith chaplains. So the chaplains here, we range from being full-time like I am, 
to very part-time to volunteer, a breadth of different traditions. So we're quite a bunch to keep coordinated and on the same page and information flowing and things like that. But we're really thankful that the university here has committed staff to it in recent years and have worked really hard to keep our policies up to date. That's one of the things where when universities don't have good policies or live into them well, that's when you sometimes get those stories of you know, someone being burned or something not going well and leaving a legacy of hard feelings and stuff. So we're really fortunate here at Guelph that the university has committed the space and the resources and stuff, but the personnel and the policy behind it too has been a real gift to us. Earlier, you, you were saying that this, the young adults, this particular generation are absent from most churches, which I think is generally true. As you work with these folk, what's their, what is this generation's gift to the church or to spirituality in general? Andrew Root has written some great theological work around young people and youth ministry these days. And one of the double-edged kind of gifts, I guess, is a real appeal to authenticity. So I think the young people that I work with can smell a phony a mile away and mm. know when they're being played or manipulated or I'm here for my needs more than I'm here for their needs and stuff. They can smell that a mile away. But sometimes the flip of that can be almost a cynicism or a reluctance to trust or to make connections and stuff. So part of the challenge of loneliness and isolation that students feel these days in some ways is because there's an, a not really keenly identified prescription for what authenticity looks like. And we're all struggling with that. We're all figuring out who we are and we're all works in progress. And sometimes we fumble along the way. And sometimes that can burn bridges pretty quickly with some folks. So I'd say the gift of, of our young people to the church is that authenticity, but also it comes with some challenges. I think that's an okay gift and a challenge to the church. I mean, that was from my perspective, that's so much of what Jesus brought to the faith. So much of what he questioned the religious authorities of his time and place around was like, are you really here for the good of the people? Or are you really here for your own well-being? And I think in some ways it can be a very powerful gift, that desire for authentic engagement to the church in general, if the church is open to the experience of receiving that. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of truth telling that I think young people want to see in our churches and that they've not always felt and stuff. So we always boil things down a little bit to brass tacks here. And we talk a lot about traditions because I'm ecumenical and we're all kind of, you know, navigating our way through the way I do things and the way you do things. And what does it really boil down to? And for us here, it boils down to Jesus. And, you know, is there something in the life of Jesus that you think you can build a life on? And yeah. if so, you're in good company here too. And so just to turn my previous question around a bit, get the sense you're deeply called to this and deeply committed to it. What is it you want to bring to these young people? I hope I bring just a pastoral, non-judgmental listening ear. It's so funny in my work here, you know, I tell them stories, you know, like I was 10 in 1988 and they say, oh my gosh, you're so old, right? They 
Oh, Andrew, they think no, you're I didn't, I didn't Andrew Richardson, they think I you're the opposite. Yeah. I know. And that's my point is that when then I spend the rest of my week in church context and they yeah. call me, oh, you're just a wee babe and you yeah. don't know anything yet and all this stuff, right? So it's a role that you know leaves you insecure or not sure who you are or what room am I in today and stuff. So I hope no matter what setting I'm in, that I'm bringing a listening ear. We're in the season of Lent uh, coming up here and we're offering some holy listening practices to our students, just with a sense that, that students long to just be heard and to be received as they are with all their questions. People here on campus are studying a multitude of things that I couldn't even begin to describe. And so I often find myself in the position of a learner. I, I'm intrigued by what our students are studying and where do you see God in that? and wow, I know nothing about agriculture, but you know, you tell me what you're learning. I wanna be kind of receptive to that and encouraging of that. And I think you know, people are pastoral in other settings too. In some ways, ministry with young people is not all that different from ministry with others too, in that the call of the pastor is to be an encourager and a uplifter and, and supporter and to hopefully reflect back a little bit of Jesus to students who wanna be heard. And I hadn't thought about it, but Guelph is unique in the sense that agriculture is a big part of what they're known for. And I'm wondering whether there's like an opening to kind of eco-theology or creation theology that might be unique to Guelph as opposed to somewhere else. Yeah, or just like farmer theology, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah like uh, Wendell Berry. Yeah, and even yeah, that our rural churches are aware of just the wonderful practicality of farm communities and the young people of farm communities are just as endearing and wonderful to work with and stuff too. I ministered in Ranchland in BC for three and a half years. That was my settlement charges in Ranchland. And oh. what I just treasured about the ranchers and the farmers where they didn't always come to church on a Sunday morning because apparently those cows need milked and those herds need moved and that hay needs to come in like really nature how dare you get in my way as a liturgical leader but what I found was this deep sense of really caring for their land in very deep ways Andrew and I are so dating ourselves in this conversation today. Like, I feel really old today. When I was ordained in 2002, the following year was the first kind of real year where BC was like being devastated by wildfires. And my little community was the first of those wildfires that summer where it moved from being in the wilderness into burning people's homes and devastation. And I remember being with the ranchers and how devastated they were the way they could not rescue their animals mm -hmm. as this fire rages across the mountainside and at that time of year all the animals are up on the alpine meadows because that's where the rich food is and they couldn't get up there and they were so devastated by this sense of loss and people were like well you know you get insurance you'll get the animals back and they're like no it's not about that it's about i left those animals i had to leave them up mm -hmm. there to die in this fire. And just that deep sense of connection. And some of their kids were going to places like Guelph and stuff to learn farming, you know, learn the great big kind of agribusiness piece and, and other pieces, but just that they are deeply connected through creation 
to their animals and to the land that they work on. Yeah. I would just add too, you know, even beyond agriculture students here, I think to be a young person, you know, whether you're at university or not, um, you are concerned about the environment. And what I've seen in recent years is almost an existential dread that when I grew up, it was kind of like, yeah, the environment's important and we need to kind of get on with this and stuff. But for these students, it's they're literally talking about their future. And so levels of depression and anxiety and fearfulness tied to the environmental crisis around our young people is huge. And I think will only become a bigger mm -hmm. thing, which of course prompts all sorts of theological questions. And again, another one of those kind of echoes of like, does nobody care about my future? Right. Mm -hmm. And just with COVID here and the amount of rancor and trouble COVID has caused, it has left a lot of students really despairing around the environmental crisis. Because if we can't get our act together and be unified and come up with a game plan around COVID, what are we going to do for the environmental crisis? Mm -hmm. So lots of anxiety. There's lots of students here wondering why should I be asking questions of vocation and my future when, you know, my life into old age is not guaranteed. And there's a level of anxiety and fear that is new in recent years, I think, that we're, I'm hearing at least. Now you um, recently have created a resource for young adults, my daily discoverant, 40 days of vocational discernment for young adults. So can you say a little bit about that? This resource uh, is kind of a workbook format that is actually kind of phase two of a project that was begun a handful of years ago. Back in maybe the seven or eight years ago, a little mm -hmm. team of myself and I'm going to list some colleagues here, Karen Orr and Robin Magali and Bronwyn Corlett when she was working for the Office of Vocations there. We created a small group curriculum around asking some questions of young adults about how you make good decisions about mm -hmm. career and calling. And there was identified a need for something that was a little bit beyond a regular confirmation program. So we still have confirmation programs in our church and they're still a thing. And folks who might not normally show up at church will engage in a confirmation program in lots of settings. And then for some folks, they went on, and if you discerned a calling to ministry, you might do what then was the discernment process. And folks who did that said it was a great experience and it was, what a gift it was to spend time with people from your church and asking good questions and stuff, but it was really kind of geared towards ministry. My wife took the discernment process, the, the discernment process and it affirmed for her a calling to teaching. So uh, not everyone who benefited from it went on to pursue ministry, but everyone who took part said what a gift it was. And it seemed like there was a need for something kind of in between. And so something that a young adult might take that it might be kind of like confirmation part two, or that might be like a lighter version of a discernment process for ministry, and a broader kind of questions around how you make decisions and stuff. So uh, we came up with this program that involved mentors and group study and things like that. Uh, and it got used a little bit in certain quarters of our church. But one of the bits of feedback that we got, which was in some ways a little bit discouraging, was that in so many of our churches, there might be like one young adult, or there might be like two young adults, but you couldn't get anyone to be mentors for them. Could we come up with 
a workbook or something that we could give to a young adult that they could do on their own because we're struggling to surround them with community to mm -hmm. ask these good questions, right? And so on the one hand, it's like, well, that's a helpful piece of feedback. It's also like a little discouraging that like our churches can't come around young adults as they're trying to discern life decisions and stuff. That's kind of yeah. part of our baptismal vows or something, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> so this is that workbook that uh, is a few years in the making. It goes over a lot of the material that was in the previous study, but you can give to a young adult and they can work through it on their own and includes 40 days of reflections that I had the joy to author and provide some good questions for journaling and so forth, but also include some voices from across not only the United Church, but some of our ecumenical partners and stuff too. We wanted it to feel like you're engaging with a community, even though you're working on this workbook alone. <laughs> so a multitude of voices, particularly from some of the younger leaders in our church too. It's so important for young adults to see themselves sort of reflected in the leadership uh, that we can offer. So this is uh, book is available and out released into the wild and stuff. And so uh, I'm so thankful to be kind of promoting it and helping it get in the right hands. So I'm kind of, I think there's a couple of things I'm kind of very curious about. And we could end up going down, as I say, a whole bunch of different rabbit holes today with mm -hmm. this, but I'm trying to figure out if there's a connection or if you've thought about this or whether it's something you're working on you've created this resource to help young adults discern. And Andrew and I have young adults in our life, our kids, well, you know, our kids are at a university now, but I remember barely the whole process of what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? And when I get there is when they are in university and they're thinking about what it is I want to do, I'm wondering if there's a connection with this desire for authenticity that is maybe moving this generation that is coming through now into a place of, I don't just want a career or a job. I want to matter. Yeah, I think for sure there's a real sense in our the young people I work with that a job that just pays the bills isn't going to lead to a, a fulfilling life. How do I measure what a fulfilling life mm -hmm. looks like, right? And if, you know, a steady income and making money and, and stuff is your barometer of success, then that's fine. There's lots of people like that in the world. But I think if we are folks who take our Christian faith seriously, we have a different orientation to what a meaningful life looks like. And so this resource is for folks who kind of want that sense of purpose to infuse their sense of vocation, but also to give permission to folks that your career isn't your only setting in which you live out your vocation and calling too. And so, you know, when I was working at the bookstore to support my halftime ministry, it was fine. Sometimes you do the work that pays the bills and stuff, and then you become a really committed lay member of your church and commit that way. Or maybe your sense of calling is in your family or in your work you do in your community and stuff. There's a breadth of settings in which you could live out your vocation trying to encourage folks, yeah, to think of your sense of calling as being more than just what you do for work or for employment. That might be where there's a bit of a challenge for the, the institution of the church at this moment, because the institution of the church is more set up with, I go to work and I do my nine to five, and then I go to the board meeting in the evening, and that's my commitment to the church. Mm. Whereas what I got from reading some of the reflections and the questions that you ask in your book is that it's a much more holistic approach. Yes, I may have to work to 
earn a salary to be able to do the things I want to do. But there's also a sense of this kind of holistic, all matters more as a whole rather than as individual pieces. Or am I reading that all wrong? Because that wouldn't be the first time. (laughs) No, I, I affirm where you're headed with that. I think the sense that your work at the grocery store might be a sense of calling or your work at home in the family or at church on Sundays in a a lay role, it all counts. And truthfully, in some ways, it's, we try to get to a spot where it's not always what you do, it's sometimes how you do it. Mm -hmm. And so I can be located in the perfect job, you know, for me, like this is a dream job for me. But if I show up here grumpy and, and angry, and I don't represent the values or the character of Christ in my being here, uh, I might as well be somewhere ill-fitted and stuff. So, you know, it, it does boil down to how do you inhabit your days, whether you are in the opportunity that aligns with your sense of calling or not. We all have kind of choices to live into God's call. And so I guess the challenge then for us is to be a little bit more clear about what is God doing in the world and how does that intersect with where I am today? And how do I engage the invitation in my mundane, everyday life to engage with what God is doing in the world? It's certainly true that we don't have a lot of young adults in the church, which means that we also don't have a lot of young adult ministers so or young ministers at all. Do you encounter young adults either working with this program or just in your work generally who actually are discerning a call to ministry, like formal organized ministry? Sometimes yes and sometimes no. We're in a season right now where we actually have three students in a process for ministry right now. So two of them are on the candidacy pathway. One of them comes from an Indigenous background and is so kind of engaging in discernment with elders and and so forth. That's a bit of a rarity uh, for us, I guess. I always kind of joke that some of our students, if they get into ministry, it's because they've seen me do it and they say, well, if Andrew can do it, I can do it too. (laughs) Well, it's good to be a good example. You know, sometimes there are folks who do sense that calling into official ministry in the church. And in some ways, I'm always mystified when I see that because there's so many other options available and there's so many reasons not to do do it. There's so many Uh, reasons to run for the hills. Yeah, well, and some of them are, you know, clergy people like us who dissuade folks and make it look, you know, unfun and uh, a real burden and stuff. But, you know, there's also, yeah, that sense of calling that is like your calling is a source of discontent, but also great joy at the same time, right? Mm. It's the stuff that keeps you awake at night. And if the church is that for you, then that's great. But also, you know, if you have a passion for something else, I think it's up to the church to recognize God's call within that and to widen our sense of where we identify the church as being. You know, the student who is learning in agriculture college about sustainable soil treatments and things like that. And for them, that is a passion and that's their little bit of contributing to a sustainable world and what God is doing in it. I think it's incumbent upon the church to recognize and affirm that rather than saying, oh, it only counts if you come and do it on Sundays or that you do it within our confines. I think that's really important because one of the things we hope this podcast does is expose people who are discerning or thinking about their vocation to the myriad possibilities of ordered ministry. So we don't just interview Sunday service pastors. We're always looking for people who are doing interesting things in the church, part of their 
ministry or as even as their ministry. And it's amazing, actually, the number of intriguing, you know, interesting things that people are up to. I kind of, you know, maybe I'm sure as ministers have sorted out for decades upon decades, I got into ministry in some ways thinking like, oh, well, this is good because now I can make the church the way I want it to be. And quickly kind of realized that ministry is actually about identifying the calling in others and affirming the gifts of others and helping lay people figure out the church they want it to be. And so the more I talk to clergy people who I recognize and look up to, the more they're bragging about their lay people and the cool things they're doing Monday to Saturday and the, the way that God is at work in the, the real world, right? Sometimes we talk about campus as not being part of the real world. Well, I think sometimes the church can be the same thing. I think in the sense of like helping young adults as you are affirm what they're doing is important in the world, regardless of how they choose to live out any sort of vocation. I think could possibly impact churches when they make that decision to either go back to church or to go to church, right? because they come with a whole different worldview of what church is going to be for them, which of course will challenge the establishment, but you know, that's okay. That's a good thing. And I think part of why I got into work with young adults was I sensed in the church a narrative that said, once you become 20 something, you go away and maybe you'll come back when you have kids. Mm. And I recognize that that is some people's story and that's a great story to tell and stuff. But I lament that it has become the default story for how we engage young adults. So I'm trying to envision what does it look like for the church to actually continue being a part of the life of 20 somethings, partly because I think the church and our Christian tradition has resources that can inform the questions that people are asking in their young adulthood or their emerging adulthood, but also because those 20 somethings are such a gift to us. And part of why we did an intentional community at the last church I worked at was just because having three 20 somethings in our church visible and regular was leaven to the bread. It mm. just raised everyone's sense of community and the impact they had was huge. They don't realize it, but they brought a lot of joy and commitment to our church. So. It's great to have a university chaplain on because I think for the last well, 30 years anyway, university chaplaincy has been slipping as a viable ministry that the denomination is still committed to. Mm -hmm. I think we're on the wrong track when we gave up on that. And I'm, yeah. I'm really glad to, I mean, and Karen and I have been talking a lot about discipleship and really what you're doing is discipling young people, like helping them learn what it is to be a disciple and what that means for them in their own lives. Yeah, I think there are certain windows in life that are maybe a little bit more formative than other windows, maybe. You know, one of the things we talk about in terms of vocational discernment is there's a lot of questions being asked in those young adult years at the beginning of your working life. But the best people to match those young adults up with are the newly retired because they are asking those exact same questions. What makes a meaningful life? What do I do with my time and my skills and stuff, right? So there are, I think, opportunities in our church to match folks up and to do that, but you need someone to be the matchmaker. And that's where I think the church has done a disservice in stepping away from things like campus ministry, or I guess 
downloading responsibility to more local and regional folks to carry the weight and which some of them do really well and, and some struggle a bit more with. I would love for us to have a more comprehensive vision for how we as the church want to engage young adults, but also specifically students uh, at university and college. There's been such a, a huge growth in terms of things like community college here in Ontario, so or going into the trade and things like that. Uh, in some ways, ministries like ours are holdovers from commitments when hoity-toity United Church Anglican Presbyterian folks were invested in the elite of the elite and they might go <laughs> off to universities aren't that anymore. But if we actually cared about young adults, we'd have we'd be starting ministries at community colleges or at mm -hmm. trade schools. Where are young adults and where do we need? University is, you know, obviously an important location for that, but by no means is that the only place where young adults are and, mm. and in need of, of the church to come alongside. Well, I think that's a good challenge for the church and for something for the church to think about, because I think one of the things we've learned, at least in the last two years, is that church is not what we thought it was because it's been challenged to change, to adapt into a different way of being. And I think that's a good challenge for the church to think about. So how are we going to be with our younger generations? Because the church has traditionally been one of the few places, or certainly, maybe not traditionally, but certainly in the last few years, one of the few places where the generations actually hang out together. It's one of the few places where you do get the nine months to 90 years all in the same room, at least for an hour every week. And that is a good place for those people to mix and merge mm -hmm. and to learn. One of the best things that happens in the pre-COVID times, I guess, with our campus ministry was on Wednesdays, different churches would bring us crock pots of chili and stew and stuff. And it wasn't the chaplains who made it, but it was the surrogate grandmothers in all of our partner churches who made home-cooked church food oh. and brought it to campus and hung out and ate with these students they're not connected to these students at all. They, our students are from across the country and internationally, and, but their only bond together was that we are part of the body of Christ together. And for our students to have someone come and be their surrogate grandmother for just an hour and ask them questions about what they're studying and encourage them and to have them come to campus into mm. the young adult space. We can say a lot about our churches and stuff, but they are not young adult spaces. They are spaces of older generations. And so it takes a whole heck of courage and gumption for a young adult to show up. We think of the reasons why young adults don't show up. There's myriad <laughs> reasons why young adults wow. don't show up in those spaces. And so we need to applaud every single one that shows up for whatever they do. But for a relationship to go both ways, for our churches to show up here on campus uh, into traditionally young adult spaces is so meaningful and powerful. And one of the ways we do that is by supporting campus ministries, right? We wave the flag of the United Church and the Anglican Church and the Presbyterian Church here because we want to signify that we represent communities that might not be super visible here, but they're supporting a ministry here on their behalf. Uh, and so we represent uh, a breadth of partners here and it's a, a real joy to do that well thanks andrew for joining and the other andrew and i here today on our it's your call podcast so from myself karen medland and for me andrew richardson thank you for joining us and uh, thank you uh, andrew hyde for giving us some insight into uh, the vocational life of, of uh, young adults we really appreciate it 
So from It's Your Call, uh, podcast of the United Church of Canada, we'll say goodbye. Bye, everyone. Take care. For spiritual resources to be used in a group or individually, shop United Church Bookstore at www.ucrdstore.ca. Listeners of It's Your Call receive 20% off orders over $45 with the discount code YOURCALLING.